Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need when you need it with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I think self-management really ironically requires more structure, more more. It totally does. Yes. Right, because hierarchy is this thing. It's this. It's super simple, and it it's so scalable, and you know, so repeatable. You know, it's brilliant, right, in, in that way. But it, but when you get rid of it, I think it really puts the onus on organizations, on collectives, to to sort of figure out how do we substitute, how do we make up for what we've lost. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Evans. Hey, everyone. We are also joined today by Michael Wiley, an assistant professor of organizational behavior at INSEAD. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. On today's episode, we're going to talk about your research around self-management and the broader zeitgeist of work right now. But before we do that, we have a little thing we need to do called a check-in. Just a tiny one. We have a lot of new listeners, so I'm going to refresh our collective (laughs) memory on why we do a check-in round, which is to get us present, to start our conversation with an equal share of voice, to allow us in a meeting to start on time rather than awkwardly talking about the weather for three and a half minutes, uh, and to uh, connect and ask interesting questions and learn more about one another. To that end, our question for today is, what is your latest discovery? So I'm going to go first, and then Michael, and then Aaron, because I've got one at the top of my brain. Boom. I was just in D.C. with my best friend Hollis, and she gave me her old aura ring, which uh, is a tracker of your activity and sleep and heart rate and things like that. I'm wearing one right now. Are you? Of course, <laughs> of course you are. And so I've discovered a lot about like my biorhythms in the week that I've been wearing this thing. One of which is that some of my beliefs about what an absolute shit sleeper I am are not true. So what I'm learning <laughs> is that my lived experience of my garbage night of sleep doesn't really check it. The data does not support what I experience at night. And actually, for the most part, I'm getting like as much or more deep sleep as the average adult, which is weirdly translating to me feeling more energetic because placebo effect. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. That's fantastic. Okay, so for me, it's something far less revolutionary or interesting, but I have discovered a new food here in Denver, which is called Dave's Hot Chicken. And it is Nashville (gasps) style hot chicken. And it is so delicious, and it's a problem for my family because every night they're like, what should we eat? And I'm like, I don't know, hot maybe hot chicken. <laughs> so I need to get over it. But you know how I am. I sort of do things to the nth degree and then move to a more rational level playing field. I'm so, so excited. Can we get hot chicken new. when me and Allie are in Denver? Please, yes. Let's Dude, do I it. I love hot chicken. And it's across Look. the street from a voodoo donut, so it's like a culinary yes. 
Oh, we're going to have such collision. a sugar crash. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just like, then you go to bed, night, night, <laughs> and then your aura ring is like, mm, you shouldn't eat all that stuff before you go to sleep. Your aura ring. No, we, I think we put our aura rings in, in rest yeah, mode. That's that a day. red alert. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Michael, what about you? Yeah, I would say mine is not particularly revolutionary either, but you know, I'm back in the US for the last few weeks. I, I live in France normally, so I've been kind of um, reacquainting myself to sort of all of the US sports television. I'm a big sports fan, and I've been very much getting into the Women's College Softball World Series, which is not like uh, a sport I've normally watched, but it's uh, it's been really uh, fun, and you know, I feel like compared to baseball, which is probably the, the closest male sport, it's just a far superior kind of viewing experience. It's like shorter, there's a lot more action and the like athletes are just, they clearly take so much joy in playing the sport and you actually like really see it and feel it on the television screen that yeah, I've just been sort of sucked in. Nice. That's awesome. Okay, so today's topic is reflecting on new research around self-management. And Michael, I'd like to start by asking you this. Academic research seems to be moving more into the mainstream from the margins. Why do you think this field of study is important? And where do you think it's headed in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, so I do think it's growing. I mean, I think there's been longstanding interest in alternatives to traditional hierarchical structures, but... Mm -hmm. They've been hard to study because there just haven't been that many great examples of organizations that have successfully organized differently. And so I think part of the, the resurgence of interest has been just there are more examples out there, right? So obviously Zappos adopting holacracy, sort of the development of holacracy. There are other examples that sort of have come to the fore, I think has really sort of brought new new interest. You know, academics in a way always follows what's happening in the world. And so because of that, you're starting to see greater interest. And I think it's important just because, you know, I don't think most organizations are ever going to, you know, adopt radically non-hierarchical or less hierarchical organizational designs. But I think that the basic principles are things that all organizations are increasingly looking to incorporate into their organization. So principles like empowerment, principles like collaboration and flexibility and adaptation. And so I think that by studying organizations that are really kind of pushing the edges and, you know, taking these extreme cases can shed a lot of light on how even sort of the average organization can sort of become more empowering and more agile and more collaborative. So I'm curious, because you mentioned there some skepticism about mainstream adoption of some of these ideas like whole cloth. Can you talk a little bit about what is leading you to have some some doubt about that possibility in the you know medium term, long term future? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, maybe it's just my pragmatism. Like, I think that, you know, we're so habituated to hierarchy, um, <laughs> right? We grow oh, up yeah. with it in our families, in our schools, and the workplaces. And so I think part of it is just a lack of a lack of imagination, right? Mm -hmm. What does it actually mean? And what does it actually look like? Like we have very few, you know, I think largely, we just don't have a lot of experience in that. And then right. I think second is the reality that it is really, really difficult to shift away from 
hierarchical structures. And we can get into sort of why that is. I think some people think it's like human nature for these sort of dominance uh, kind of relationships to emerge. It could be, you know, the sort of fact that it's everywhere and that's just what we're used to. It could be that hierarchy is also really good at a lot of things, right? Hierarchy is a really simple way to structure large organizations and to provide really clear lines of accountability. And so I think for all of those reasons, probably it's just, it's a really challenging thing to do. And so that's part of the reason why I think, you know, we don't, I wouldn't expect the average organization to ever be self-managing in a, in a kind of full sense of the, of the term. <laughs> Certainly not before climate change ends everything. There. <laughs> um, I, yeah, it's interesting because I do see, you know, there are patterns of this same push-pull dynamic happening in other parts of culture, for example, between centralized banking and cryptocurrency, where it is also fringe, but it's also now becoming something that people are more aware of as a mental model. So I hold, yeah, I hold quite a bit of curiosity about about the next, you know, few decades and what, what that all looks like. With that being said, though, there is this reality that, of course, the principles are valuable, but, you know, self-management is not a one-size-fits-all activity. It's done and expressed in a lot of different ways. And being successful with it often depends on specific conditions and readiness, you know, which is a link to the ready's name. What is your research telling you about the kinds of environments and cultures and contexts that are better prepared to adopt it? So for the ones that can move in that direction right now or in the near future, what, what do they have in common? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Some of this is my research. Some of this is existing research and theorizing. And I mean, I think the truth is there's not a lot of empirical research on this topic, right? A mm-hmm, lot of it mm-hmm. is theoretical. It's sort of like people hypothesizing what we think just based on like logic. But in general, I think there's been a lot of discussion around, okay, what are sort of the internal complementarities that are needed or that fit well with decentralization or mm-hmm. self-management? And so some of these things that I think that I've seen as well in my research are things like, information sharing and transparency, cultures of high trust, of openness and psychological safety. There's been some discussion around culture, kind of like sort of what cultures are good for self-management that I think are maybe a little bit more controversial. So I think historically or or long uh, kind of conventional wisdom has been that generally more homogeneous cultures are better Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because those will actually lead to less kind of differences in status that may undermine the the broader project of at least of democratic types of organizing. And we can get into maybe what are some of the difference between democratic organizing and self-management? Are they the same? Are they different? Um, incentives, right? So high-powered incentives generally are viewed to be better for sort of more self-managing types of designs. And then I think also ownership structure. So some of the research I've done has shown that you know, firms that are employee-owned, not surprisingly, aligns really well with with self-management, and that kind of vice versa. If you know employees don't have ownership, then self-management has a more difficult time taking hold. And then the last thing I'll say is that some of my my direct research has been looking more at what are what types of human capital are needed to be successful with self-management. And some of my research has shown that not everyone, right, not everyone is actually ready and fit for for working in these structures. And I'm happy to talk more about that. But I think that a lot of the rhetoric around self-management, I think, suggests or maybe assumes that this is something that everybody wants and that everyone is ready for. And I think that my research suggests that's not, not the case. And I'm sure you guys probably have seen this in spades in your work as well. 
So let's go there because I'm <laughs> super curious as to what what you've learned about fit, readiness, preparedness for working in self-management. Like, you know, what are you seeing? What what do you believe it takes? Yeah, so so this is a study we ran in a, we we ran a basically a field experiment in an organization. This is a state government agency actually, which some may be surprised would would do something like this. And we had a control group. So we had some people who basically continued to work in hierarchy and then uh, a treatment group where they were told that they could, um, you know, they had the autonomy to take any action without really needing to ask for approval, right? So they essentially became self-managing. And, and we basically followed them for a year and we surveyed them before the experiment started and then at the end of the experiment. And we were measuring things like how engaged were they, how empowered did they feel, how satisfied were they in their jobs, and how long did they, you know, what was their intention to stay at the, the organization or, or leave. And what we found was that some, some people were basically really thrived in the self-managed sort of treatment group, while others really, really struggled. And in fact, some people fared worse in the self-management treatment condition than in the hierarchy condition. And the two factors that we found predicted who thrived versus who struggled were to what degree did they have job mastery before the experiment started? So how well did they do their jobs? How much competence and skill did they have? And then the second was how interested were they and how drawn were they to working in a self-managed environment? And what we found that was really surprising is that there was very little correlation between these two factors. So performance or job mastery had very little correlation with whether you were interested in working in this sure. environment. <laughs> but those were the two factors that really predicted who, who thrived. And mm. conversely, people who had low job mastery and people who were not interested in working in this environment actually were less engaged less just satisfied in their jobs and more likely to leave the organization than those same people in the hierarchy condition. Yeah. I mean, it brings up a lot of really interesting questions for me because we've done, we've done a fair amount of work and thinking and reflection based on people in our own system and the sort of gauntlet that one goes through to move from any other system that we've been socialized to in our entire lives into self-management and sort of <laughs> what that takes and the self-work and the bolstering and the and and what we've sort of come up with is moving into self-management without scaffolding is almost always a bad idea. And and then a lot rests on the individual to adapt to something unfamiliar and quite challenging, you know, and, and then there tends to be a very small handful of reactions to that. So I'm curious in the experiment that you ran, like how much scaffolding was there? Or you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because like your, your results do not surprise me at all. And to me, like that's part of the system work of self-management is creating the kind of scaffolding so that people perhaps with lower mastery, perhaps with lower self-awareness, perhaps with more trauma or less psychological flexibility, et cetera, can ultimately make the journey. So I'm like, I'm sort of curious about how that was or was not present in the, in the experiment. Uh, so, so I would say there was some scaffolding, but not a ton mm -hmm. in this particular experiment. And so in some ways, you know, I don't think the conclusion from this research should be, oh, 
there are some people who can never function effectively in a self-managed environment. Now that may be true, right? That in our life, in in one's lifetime, and and sort of given the difficulty that we all have in changing and developing and growing, that, you know, it is possible that there may be some people that just aren't a good fit. But I think it really raises another question that I think is fascinating and that I am sort of starting to think about how do I design a study to really look into this, which is, how can we help people adapt yeah. to these types of environments? What types of training, what types of on-ramp, what types of scaffolding is most helpful in helping people that might not be otherwise inclined or uh, ready or sort of chomping at the bit to work in this environment to be successful in this type of environment? And so, you know, I don't know what the answer to that is. I'm sure you have some <laughs> insights from your experience, and I would love to also learn from you and, and what you guys have seen. But, but I think that's a really interesting and open question that I'm excited to, to explore. It does seem like the variety of stories out there and industries and cultures and the fact that there is a successful case for almost every industry in almost every country, but it's the only one of its kind usually, <laughs> suggests to me that that there's a little bit of lightning in a bottle about this, but there's also a great amount of possibility and hope in this area because it doesn't seem to me to correlate to education, to intelligence, to interest, to geography, to culture. It tends to boil down more to what were the conditions when it happened and how organic and how slow and thoughtful and committed was that organization and that leadership to making it happen? So when I do see it happen in places where you would think it would not go well, it feels to me that it's often the case that they just planted a flag and they figured it out together in a very slow and methodical and careful and iterative way over years or decades, not uh, sort of deep end of the pool approaches. And so it, it feels like we know that works. Now, is there a way to accelerate that? Is there a way for that to be less organic and potentially you know, more disruptive? That's where the kind of theory and practice intersect for me and, and where a lot of curiosity is. But maybe, maybe with that being said, it would be fun to discuss just the different types and approaches to self-management and what we both mean. Because when Rodney and I talk about it, when you talk about it, we may not even be talking about the same Venn diagram. So why don't we unpack the, the, the term and see, you know, what are the different flavors out there? Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, because I've always felt like there's as much variety within different cases and approaches to self-management as, as there are similarities. So yeah, yeah let's go there. So where, where should we begin? I mean, you, given the research that you're doing, how would you scope the breadth of what you're seeing and, and how would you define it? Yeah. So, I mean, I've, and so, so some of my work, which, and so some of my work has really been trying to establish what sort of self-management at an organizational level really means because self-managed teams has long been both a, a kind of thing in the world, a phenomenon, right? Like companies since, I don't know even when, know when, when it would begin, but like mid 20th century, right? Like self-managed teams became a really big thing. And you see these in all sorts of organizations and also in the academic research, it's been a kind of longstanding stream of research. And so what, you know, part of my work has really been about how do we think about and conceptualize self-management at an organizational level rather than at a team level? And so the way that, that I've 
sort of thought about it is that self-managing organizations are those that radically decentralize authority throughout the organization. So not just in sort of pockets of the organization, not just in a team or a business unit, but throughout the organization. And, and by radically decentralize authority, essentially what I mean there is that we eliminate the sort of superior subordinate relationship that is sits at the core of hierarchical structures. But, but there's a lot of variations. So you could radically decentralize authority in certain domains, but not others. So, you know, you can take an example like holacracy, which, you know, decentralizes authority around work execution, right? So people can make decisions in their roles, or you can decentralize authority around um, actual task and project allocation. So, a company like Valve, which is well known among our circles, right? People can choose what they work on, which is not the same as in holacracy. So, and, and so you can think about all of the different decision domains that could be decentralized, like strategy, performance management, organizational design. And so I think different organizations are going to sort of decentralize authority differently in different domains. So that's one, I think, difference. I think there are others, which, you know, I'd love to talk about, but but maybe we can start there. No, I, li- I like that. I mean, I do think we were big believers in in the fact that there are different areas of operations where these ideas come to life. And we talk about that as the OS canvas and, and you know, it expresses itself there. I think for me, it boils down to a couple things. One is the difference between a permission-based authority system and a constraint-based authority system. So I have this, you know, kind of silly graphic that I drew a while back where it basically, you know, shows the fork of like, is the assumption that I can't do anything until I'm told that I can through either a role or a promotion or an explicit request? Or is the assumption that I can do anything until I'm told that I can't? that actually there's some constraint that's applied through an agreement or a policy or, or a structure that we, we impose on the system. And so I, I do believe at a very base level that that's really one of the main forks in the road is just how is authority distributed or not distributed. And then there's also interplay between the, the autonomy and the sovereignty of the individual and what they're able to do versus what you're able to do to others. And so we had a guest on the show a while back who was talking about, you know, basically two principles at Morningstar. This is Doug Kirkpatrick. Mm -hmm. And he was basically saying, you know, don't use force and keep commitments is really the whole thing. And that kind of that resonated with me. If if I was thinking for like, what are the simplest definitions of self-managing systems that I see? They tend to conform to those ideas. Like there's not a lot of force exerted on others without due process or consent or collective you know, processing. And there's a lot of, uh, of commitment to what we do, what we say we're going to do when we make interpersonal arrangements, then we, then we kind of honor those things. So that, that tends to be the way it works for me. When it comes to the variety in the space, I see more variety around structure than anything else. And so the difference maybe between like a marketplace system, like a hire and yeah. something more nested like a holarchy or a sociocracy where you're basically saying, you know, this is kind of still power-driven hierarchical, it's just that we're distributing a lot more power than we used to, versus the more marketplace systems that tend to not have a lot of levels or, or layers. Mm-hmm. They just have a lot of interoperating cells that are conducting 
literal business with each other transacting. And and because of that, they sort of have market forces driving what happens instead of leadership. So that's the main divergence that I see in the space, aside from, you know, little stuff around scale or depth of practice. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm glad you brought up the kind of market model or metaphor, because I, I would say like, there's a third for me as well. Mm, okay, uh, Which is, right, more of a kind of community based metaphor for self-management. And so I'm thinking about like your classic worker cooperative mm-hmm, as maybe mm-hmm. the, the sort of archetype of this other form of self-management, which isn't about bringing market forces into the organization, but it's about how do we facilitate a kind of consensus-based egalitarian way of working that honors the the kind of contribution and perspective of every individual in this organization. And so I, you know, I think that like that is such a different set of principles and model than a market-based model like hires. And I know Zappos is doing similar things around how do we kind of give different teams PL and and basically have these market mechanisms serve as the coordinating function and coordinating mechanism. And so, you know, I don't, I, I think like, I see that as almost as a third that, you know, that holacracy sort of sociocratic models don't really fit into like neatly into either of those. I don't know. What, what do you think? What do you guys think about that? I mean, the only thing I, I would offer is just that it feels to me like the scale plays a role here as well in these in these differentiating factors, because I think it's possible to have mixes of all three yep. in systems. So, for example, you could have a marketplace system with groups of 50 or 100 people transacting with each other, and the 50 people inside one of those cells could be operating according to the cooperative principles that you just highlighted. So you get a little bit of like layer cake here. But yeah, generally speaking, I think that is that's a map of the territory. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because for me, like, I I always think it's interesting to look at what's happening in the market and what various people are trying. But like, for me, there are a couple of just non-negotiable tenets of (laughs) self-management that actually have nothing to do with whether it's operating as a co-op or a voting concern or a marketplace or anything else, which is how much work are the people inside of the system doing, able to do, consenting to in terms of how they work. And mm. and to me, what is important about that is in order to upend traditional hierarchy and power structures, if the people who are in the system are continuing to rely on individual judgment of one another, individual assessing of what is good or what is competitive or what is innovative or whatever, and not channeling that energy into specified, consented to, rubrics, workflows, ways of being, you're not doing self-management. Yeah. So if it continues to be like, Aaron knows what good is, that's not self-management. No matter whether it's done in an advice process or (laughs) it's done in role-based clarity, like if, if ultimately things are just reliant on an individual based on that individual's brain or heart or experience or whatever, we're not there yet. It feels like you're almost talking about like a resilience or an anti-fragility principle. I am. Which is a, another cool angle for this, yeah. uh, especially these days. Yeah. So, 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 so it sounds like what you're saying to me is like, to what degree are they able to create sort of collective structures or rules or processes that rather than it just be sort of, you know, 
do do what you want or do what you exactly. think is right. Exactly. To me, it's not, I mean, certainly agency is required to do those things. But if I'm in a self-managing system and there isn't a way for me to propose working mm-hmm in a different kind of structure or experimenting with a market-based pod or bringing a new product to market. Like if there are no venues for real experimentation in many domains of the work, then we're not quite there. And so to me, everything else is, um, everything else are things we can try. So we have to have enough authority to be able to try them. But what I always come back to, and and this and this Michael sort of relates to the individual side of this and comfort with this and ability to function in this way, is if in a self-managing system, I am not able to take the tension that I am feeling with another person or with a team or with a way of working and and begin to do something to change that for the system rather than just having to overcome it with my brilliance and my persuasion, then we're not, I'm not really self-managing. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, what's ironic to me about your, <laughs> your contention is that I feel like most efforts to facilitate or, 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 or foster self-management fall into the trap of not creating those collective structures and I processes agree with you. Mm-hmm. learning, right? It's, <laughs> yeah, we try to skip that part. <laughs> <laughs> it's right. It's almost like, oh, let's just get rid of structure. Let's yeah. just get rid of things and, and, and sort of enable people to be more free and more autonomous and not getting to the stage of like, okay, what are the alternative kind of rules and structures and processes that we need to put in place to to either facilitate coordination, to ensure power remains decentralized, right? Whatever, whatever it might be. Um, And so I, so I actually think that's like the exception almost rather than the rule. So, uh, but I agree. I think it's, I think it's such a critical piece to, to effective self-management. And I think that, you know, some of my research has really pointed to like how important that is to, especially the point, the, 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 the challenge of keeping power from, yes, from recentralizing. Right. Because, because if there aren't, structures in place, whether those are agreed upon ways of making decisions or meeting structures that are more democratic in nature, like if there's no way to hedge it when the thing happens that we didn't want to happen, when we revert to every way that we were socialized from church to family to education to et cetera, (laughs) to our internship, if there's no collective hedge to say, we are starting to smell like that and we don't like it, then I think we're stuck. Mm-hmm. Like, I think those, those structures have to, have to be there for it to really be an evolutionary system. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think, I think the other thing that it really brings up for me is just how I, how I think self-management really ironically requires more structure, more, more. It totally does. Yes. Right, because because hierarchy is this thing. It's this. It's super simple, and it it's so scalable, and you know, so repeatable. You know, it's brilliant, right, in, in that way. But it, but when you get rid of it, I think it really puts the onus on organizations, on collectives, to to sort of figure out how do we substitute, how do we make up for what we've lost, in a way that sort of still aligns with these principles of self management. And what's funny about that, about your comment about more structure, I I was at a client several years ago, and one of the people that I was working with was like a dyed-in-the-wool project manager, like had all of her (laughs) certifications. And she was, and the first day that I got the group together to create a backlog and pull 
projects forward. Like I thought her head was going to, she was just like, this is not how you make a plan. You know, she's like losing her mind. And six months later, what she said to me was, before I knew how to work in this way, I was confusing process with discipline. And now I understand that what we had before was a lot of process and no discipline. And now what we have is a ton of discipline and not a lot of process. And I was Mm. like, that's the shit right there. That's a nice t-shirt. Yeah. If you like what you're hearing, uh, a review would mean a lot to us. That is how the algorithms decide who gets to hear this stuff. And as we're learning in this conversation, uh, a lot more people need to. So please uh, drop that review, you know, give it a like, give it a tweet and, and forward the show to someone who needs it. So talking about hedging against falling into old traps, we heard you, Michael, on our friend of the pod, Lisa Gill's podcast, talking about how one tenet of self-managing organizations does involve radically decentralizing authority, which we've talked a bit about already. But as we just uncovered, power does have a way of re-centralizing even after we do the work to spread it out. So How do you see that teams and organizations can best fight against power's slipperiness? And how does authority remain decentralized rather than reconsolidating in ways we don't intend for it to? Yeah, so so I think that this really ties nicely to what we were just talking about around the need for structure, which is that I think that when organizations move away from hierarchy or hierarchical authority, they don't think about, they sort of assume that authority goes away, that instead of authority, now we just are in a land of, okay, we're just going to persuade and influence each other. And it's all going to be sort of this relational collaborative process where authority doesn't really, isn't relevant. And I think that that's a mistake. So I think that one of the the lessons from from my research has been that organizations really need to think about how is authority going to be structured differently? Not that authority is going to go away, but that it needs to be structured differently. It needs to be structured in a more horizontal rather than a vertical way. And I think that part of that, the way you do that is to think about what are the rules and norms and guardrails around how authority is going to function. And the the more explicit, the more clear those rules and guardrails are, I found that that leads to greater sustainability in decentralizing authority. And conversely, you know, I've studied organizations that have tried to get rid of hierarchy, get rid of titles, but basically have left everything else ambiguous. Mm-hmm. And what what we found is that, you know, that just leads to the uh, creation of a really strong informal hierarchy that's based on personal characteristics, status, and other things that aren't necessarily good or rational for the organization. And so I think that the conclusion that one can draw from this is that, you know, formality and clarity are really the friend of decentralization and informality and ambiguity are the enemy of decentralization. And I think that on top of that, I mean, there's other things as well, such as, right, the importance of senior employees modeling and really paying attention and being mindful about how they function because everyone is looking to them, right, and taking cues from them. And then also on the flip side, the need for other employees, whether that's frontline employees, uh, mid-level employees, having the courage to really push back when they see, you know, maybe transgressions against the the rules and norms of, of the new 
the new structure. So those are some of the lessons that that have really popped from from my studies. The phrase I am thinking about lately is power watching, which is basically like it's bird watching but for for power. And so you, you know, while you have these practices and principles in action and you have a way of distributing authority, you also I think need to cultivate a practice of just noticing where is power going? Where is it moving? Because to your point, Rodney, it is so slippery and it is it likes to pool. And so, you know, what's happening? And then just how do we feel about that? Right? Because it's not, there's nothing wrong with, with power going to places and ending up in places, if that is organically benefiting the purpose of the organization and is consented to by the participants in the group. But if it's happening in a in a way that we're not noticing, and that, you know, over time starts to get more imbalanced or non-resilient or toxic, then obviously that's bad news. Yeah. And just to to sort of tie together what I just heard from both of you, I I also think that there is a watch out in the rhetoric around courage. Mm. Because to me, if you're designing systems or interventions or workflows for feedback or sharing ideas or whatever that require people who have a lot to lose to be courageous, they're not good (laughs) interventions. Like it should be as safe as possible for the person who is at the most risk to do the thing if we actually expect them to do the thing. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think where I go with that is, is that, and I think to, to tie Aaron, your comment as well, which is, you know, power watching, but then also like, what is the process for yeah. actually addressing, mm-hmm. you know, these transgressions? If someone feels like there has been a transgression or a problematic kind of pooling of power, is there a kind of collectively agreed upon process for raising that issue and for figuring out what to do about that. And I think that rarely have I seen organizations implement something like that. And I'm curious if you have, if there are any good good models of that that you've seen. But but I, I've seen that very rarely. So I'm on my my second go at my second company of, of trying to figure this out in a way that makes it safe and lowers the um, threshold for courage required and also minimizes the ability of individuals or systems to punish people who actually bring those transgressions to the forefront. And so I don't have... (laughs) I don't have the right answer, but I have <laughs> ideas. Um, so, so like anything else, I think there are principles that that help and don't. So, the way that we are we are tackling this at the moment at the ready in a recently governed but quite controversial workflow that we proposed was to create a member review process. And the tenets of that that I think are important are anonymity, so the ability of someone to trigger a member review with necessarily implicating themselves as the person who is bringing it up. Now, you have to have some assumption of good intent in your system to assume people won't abuse something like that. We have that. And so that felt safe in the trade-off of transparency and accountability for the person bringing it forward versus safety and protection for a person who might be freaked out, we opted for the latter. So privacy, anonymity in terms of bringing something forward, providing only the detail that one feels safe to share. Obviously, it is completely at the discretion of someone bringing something up to share it directly with the person to have exhausted all channels. And like we we have sort of a checklist of those things that we ask people to do first before triggering this process. And then 
having those who review the membership of an individual be elected so that it doesn't just default to whoever has been here the longest or makes the most money or has the most informal influence, but instead to the people who have high trust in the system. And um, and we've not yet actually had it triggered at the ready, so TBD. But I think those kinds of tenants that, like, you know, frankly line up with everything else that you said at the top of the show, like, you know, having more empowerment, having more participation, having more collaboration, et cetera, those things have to be present even in the most controversial and difficult and thorny of the processes, which like there's nothing thornier than complaining about a person in power or asking that they are potentially invited <laughs> right. to leave. Like there's, you know, there's nothing, nothing gnarlier than that. No, no, no. Right. Right. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So that's fascinating. It'll be interesting to see if and when people use that. Yeah. We'll let you know. Yeah. <laughs> On a future episode. That's right. That's right. And I mean, I think that's where culture comes in too, right? Because like you can have all the processes established, but if people don't feel like they can use it or if they feel like the bar is so high that it it would be scary to use. And, and I think this is where maybe, Rodney, I don't know if I would disagree with you, but like where I do think courage is always like going to be present in a system because like risk is always there. It's it's hard to get rid of that. And, and, and so I do think at some level, there's always going to be a need for courage, but, but certainly part of designing a good system is to, is to reduce the need for people to take on like huge amounts of risk and taking actions that you think are good for the organization. Oh, I totally agree with you. And it's like, you know, <laughs> in the scenario, like the one I just painted, like if if I were triggering that process and hitting that button, no matter how behind the curtain I might think I am, I am certain that like my heart is racing and I want to barf and it does take a ton of courage anyway. I, you know, I think Michael, you and I make the same assertion, which is just, how do we make it as safe and accessible as possible, knowing that where there is risk, it will always take some chutzpah to do it and also some ownership, right? Because it's like it's easy to just hope that someone else addresses the elephant in the room someday, that like someone else slays the dragon. So to me, it's like it's sides of a coin, right? There's the courage required no matter how safe you make it. And then there's also the giving a shitness that's required to actually do something. Yeah, and there's there's a broader context, which I think is where the courage and safety collide, which my experience has been having now done this for more than a decade. It kind of doesn't matter how safe and how wonderful and how, what the track record of the entity is if people have been raised in other families and gone to other schools and worked at other places because they bring in these deep like lower spinal cord thoughts about what could be and what might happen. Yeah. And and it just doesn't matter that, you know, if you're just like, hey, guess what? No one's ever been fired at Company X for this. Doesn't matter. Because it's, you know, because I have other things I'm, I'm bringing to the table. Right. Speaking of trauma, uh, we've spent the <laughs> last, we've spent the last many, you know, 15 months in a pandemic that has really shocked a lot of these systems. It has shocked our organizations. It shocked broader culture. It has definitely transformed the way we work in ways both good and bad. And I know you have a research project that has been looking at how self-managed orgs responded to the crisis. Can you talk a little bit about how, you know, the difference between centralization and decentralization has been playing out in this moment? 
Yeah. So, you know, I thought this was an amazing opportunity. I mean, obviously the pandemic has been a, a horrific nightmare for the world, but from a research perspective, it was just such a very rare and unique opportunity to explore, you know, organization response to a crisis that every organization is facing at the same time. And, you know, we wanted to look at this because, you know, there's sort of this conventional wisdom that decentralization, self-management is a fragile thing. And that, especially in times of crisis, that you need to centralize power. You need to centralize decision-making in order to withstand and uh, get through a crisis. And so we wanted to explore, okay, how are these self-managing organizations dealing with this? Are they centralizing power? And if so, what happens? And what we found is we, so we studied a few different organizations, self-managing organizations. And what we found is that, yes, largely they each did centralized power and decision-making in certain domains, right? Whether that was around spending, whether that was around, okay, the need to let go of some of their staff and how those decisions got made, or even just the need to be a little less transparent in certain moments, especially around questions around, okay, are we letting go a go of people and who might be, who might we need to let go of? Mm -hmm. And what we found though that was interesting was that there was variation, even though most of the organizations we studied did have to centralize decision-making in certain ways, the effect of that temporary centralization or that centralization differed. So in some organizations, people responded to that as like, oh, that's, that's okay. Like that, that's, that's part of the way we operate. And that fits, that sort of aligns with the principles of our of our structure and our system. And in other organizations, people responded to that more contentiously. It created more conflict and more of a crisis of legitimacy, like a, a sort of a, a view that this was a betrayal in some way mm -hmm. of the principles mm -hmm. of our system. And so that was really interesting. And so what we have been exploring is like, what accounts for that difference? Like why are some decentralized or what, why are some self-managing organizations able to temporarily centralize in times of crisis in a legitimate way while others aren't. And I would say like in short, you know, there are sort of a variety of factors, but in short, I think one of them has to do with whether there were rules around, can you centralize? Like, you know, and mm -hmm. can you do yeah. things sort of in a temporary way? And were those temporary instances of centralization done in a way that sort of aligned and followed those rules or not? Um, in those cases that, you know, those, those t instances of centralization were viewed as legitimate, whereas in other cases, especially in cases where organizations largely operated along principles and values, in those cases, the centralization created more problems. It created mm -hmm. more conflict. And so I think that this really highlights, I think, another, maybe another distinction in the different types of self-management which is managing by rules versus managing by sort of values and principles. And I think that one of the implications of the study is that ironically, in some ways, managing by rules can sometimes enable greater flexibility than managing sure. by values and very value, uh, managing by principles. For sure. I, it's such an interesting provocation and one that I think Aaron and I are super aligned to, <laughs> particularly because... In a time of crisis, when we talk about something like a value or a principle, whose interpretation are we using? I mean, that's where those kinds of things get slippery, right? So if we have a value around 
collectivism, but suddenly we're centralizing. But my belief is that by centralizing, we're doing what's right for the collective. But your belief is that collectivism means participation. Like it just, it gets messy pretty quickly. Whereas if there's a rule we all consented to that says these four people are going to make these types of decisions for this period of time, I think that's easier for people to live with. Yeah, that's right. I think that I think that's right. And I think that, you know, in this, of course, as an academic, like we try to find the boundary condition on everything. What we did find, though, is that there is a limit to even how much even if you have clear rules around sort of centrally, like, can you centralize and, and sort of how can you centralize? Even if you have clear rules around that, there are still maybe limits on how much you can centralize without creating questions around legitimacy and uh-huh. whether we're still we're actually aligned with some of the underlying spirit or principles or values, right? So even if the rules say, yes, we can do this, there were cases where people were like, you know, I just it didn't feel like it was right. Yeah. It didn't feel like it it aligned with why I joined this company or what I think the sort of spirit of the rules are. Mm-hmm. And so so even when you have clear rules, right, there's still maybe limits to how far you can go. And there are still these individual interpretations of what the underlying kind of logic or values of those rules are that may differ from individual to individual. That totally yeah, makes sense. That yeah. makes sense. You know what else has limits? How long a podcast can be. (laughs) Um, And that seems like a pretty good place to draw things to a close for now. So, Michael, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? So they could visit my website probably is the best place, which is michaelwiley.co. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the pod today. Yeah, thanks, guys. It was fun. Awesome. Uh, Quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin, as always, for making us sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. Get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something.